Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, you feeling better this week? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bright time to be alive. <laughs> well, last week you had a little bit of a sore throat. You know, one of the like downsides of being in the pandemic is that we just feel so much more compelled to be on calls all the time. And when you spend all day on Zoom, then, you know, you you lost your voice for the podcast. I did. Yeah, I, I actually forgot until you said that, that we uh, that we missed last week because of that. And yeah, um, I do feel much better. And while I did have several Zooms today, not as many and my voice is not shot. So it's a good day. It's a great day. Yeah, no, you got to get your priorities straight. Zoom can wait. The podcast cannot. So glad you're feeling better and ready to talk Star Wars with you. So what we talked about the other day was about having a mailbag episode. And obviously, like, no one actually sends real things in the mail anymore. So that's totally fine. But we, we did get a few people reach out to us with some questions and thought uh, it would be fun to kind of dive right into them. Let's go for it. All right. Uh, so this is from a, a long, long friend um who we went to school with way way back in the day uh our, our friend swatty who's a big star wars fan herself um and she had a few questions but I, I think this is a good one to get us started here is what are the moments in star wars that made us cry specifically movies and or tv shows uh the one that jumps to mind because it was just on my twitter feed recently the death of canon jarrus oh man i totally cried there yeah um, kind of hard not to, uh, you know, this is the scene where he, you know, they're on top of a big fuel tank. Um, the empire decides to blow up their own fuel tanks to try to kill the, the whole rebel team. And he uses the force to hold it back and then uses the force to push Hera back into the ghost, um, and, you know, sacrifices himself for his team. And he knew that whole episode and everybody knew that whole episode that that's what was going to happen. Um, but it still hits you pretty hard when it happens. Yeah, and I, I guess I actually didn't know that that was going to happen. I mean, I kind of did because they were like foreshadowing towards, you know, a separation that he kind of had like had this knowledge within the force that his role was changing. But, you know, I hadn't seen the show before. You you warned me that you had cried and that I should be prepared to do so, and I, I totally did there. Um, I'm trying to think other TV episodes that I've cried um definitely cried uh, a few times with baby yoda uh mm -hmm. this most recent last episode of season two you know i they were more tears of joy so that that was pretty great yeah um the end of season seven of clone wars oh man that's a tough episode yeah kind of like the last two or so right all together um that's that's some that's some hard watching tv yeah, yeah. I mean, when you see the fact that Rex is basically creating that graveyard, that just to know the emotional toll that that took on him and like, oh man, that that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, you know, the one that's probably surprising that always that gets me almost every time is um, uh, Twin Sons when Obi-Wan kills Maul. Oh, um, yeah. just because it's such a, the, 
the amount of emotion in that scene of Obi-Wan going from like, I don't want to have this fight. And then Maul kind of gives him that little monologue of like, you're here for a purpose. You're protecting something or maybe someone. And you see that change in Obi-Wan. He's like, "Uh, all right, it's no longer a choice. Like now I have to do this. And he knows that he has the power to kill Maul at any point, and he really doesn't want to do it, but now he has to. And then as Maul falls, you know, he kind of catches him and like comforts him as he dies as his like mortal enemy, but he's taking, you know, like compassion for his mortal enemy. Very, there's a lot there. Yeah. And for those of you at home listening, wondering what kind of grown man cries at Star Wars, uh, the, the grown man sitting six feet away from me does. And we're we're actually really serious about it because I, I think it just kind of speaks to the evolution that Star Wars has played in our lives as far as like how we've grown up with it. And it's kind of shaped a lot of our, our big memories that when we see something that's just so pivotal or so emotional, it, it actually does really resonate with both of us. It's not just me who cries at commercials too. So yeah. Interestingly, the movies don't really hit me as hard for some reason. I think it's because the TV shows have a little bit like deeper character development and longer stories. And it's this sort of these culminations of these big stories that, uh, that hit me harder. Um, about the only thing in the movies that makes me want to cry, just how terrible the scenes between Anakin and Padme are and, um, you know, possibly how much I really, really don't like Kylo Ren, but I cried when Kylo Ren kills Han Solo. Um, I, I, you also screamed. I did. I did. I I was traumatized a little bit. I I didn't think that Han Solo was going to get killed because he really survived a whole bunch of other things. He should have survived this. Uh, but obviously didn't really want to make two more movies, so I kind of get it, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I did cry there. I, I was very sad. Um, now I just get angry because, you know, not completely desensitized to it, but I, I think just kind of how we feel about Kylo Ren in general is why like the whole scene just annoys me now. But yeah. Initially, yeah. I did cry. Yeah. I have strong feelings. We like I I have strong feelings about weird kind of weird things and one of the things it, it it doesn't make me sad but it makes me um unusually angry is the destruction of Maz Kanata's castle um because you know I I have this in this in real life and in Star Wars but this sort of appreciation for things that have survived the test of time and the fact that that was like a 10,000 year old castle or something and that she'd been there for hundreds of years and then, you know, I'm just sort of on a whim because they thought maybe somebody that they were looking for was there. The First Order destroyed this sort of like old sacred meeting place. Uh, just it again didn't make me sad, just made me made me unusually angry uh, for for uh, such a small thing that has, you know, like 12 minutes of screen time for us. Um, it shouldn't be that attached to it. But I'm like, man, that's that's like an unusually, unusually jerky thing to do, um, even for for bad guys in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, did the rebels really need to destroy the millions of people who were on the Death Star working? Well, that's a whole that's a whole separate thing. Yeah, the yeah. Death Star was brand new and really didn't deserve to exist. So you know, but yeah, they did kill a lot of people, and for some reason, that doesn't to this day still doesn't hit people as hard as it probably should. I do love just as a tangent on that. There's that point. Um, in, we didn't talk about this when we talked about Mandalorian season two, but there's that one little, uh, thing where they're, they're getting the shuttle 
that has Dr. Pershing on it. Oh, the and, final episode. Yeah. Of season well, two, it's yeah. it's no, it's not the last, right? It's like no, it's the last episode. That's when they get Pershing. Is it really? Yeah. Okay, but but anyway, there's the one pilot on there, and he he makes that point because he's staring down Cara Dune, and he says he's like, you know, I was at the Death Star, and you know, millions of soldiers died that day. And uh, and I think that's the first time in Star Wars that anybody has ever mentioned that there were like consequences to that. <laughs> and he called her a terrorist. And, you know, we've talked about that idea before, but it was the first time that was ever brought up on like canon Star Wars. So, yeah, no, totally. Because I, I think there is something a little bit on the controversial side to refer to the good guys as terrorists. But they only wound up being the good guys because they won. Um, you know, history is written by the victors. That's so, right. you know, kind of going back to your comment about Maz Kanata um, and art, you know, th- this brings us to a- a- another question. You know, we we realize that very few within the Star Wars galaxy far, far away appreciate art. One of them who does is Grand Admiral Thrawn. Um, where do we think Ezra Bridger is? Do you think he's with Thrawn? A hundred percent. So I have a theory about what's going on there. Um this is only a spoiler if it ends up being a spoiler, and I have no information to say that this is a thing, so it's not really a spoiler, just my theory. Combining um, a few sources and then my own idea, one is that there's a series of books uh, that are part of the new canon about Thrawn, and the reason that he joins the Empire, he's a, he's a Chiss, so we've never really talked about this, but he his his species. He's a Chiss. He's a member of the Chiss Ascendancy, which is an uh, an empire that lives out beyond uh, in the unknown regions beyond the outer rim. And he comes into the and and joins the empire because the Chiss are afraid of some threat outside of the galaxy. Um, I think they call him the Grisk or something, um, which parallels. A now Legends canon story about the Vong, who were another species that came from outside the galaxy and wreaked havoc. They were Jedi. The Force doesn't work on them and all this stuff and whatever. Um, and sort of ties into sort of Thrawn's original persona from can- uh, from Legends canon. All that to say, I think that Ezra jumped them out of there into some place and he and Thrawn right now are working against a threat from outside the galaxy and when they find Thrawn they will find Ezra and they will be surprised by the fact that they are actually working together and that all of our heroes are going to have to team up against some sort of extra galactic threat uh, maybe in partnership with the Chiss. Interesting interesting yeah I definitely think that we're going to find Ezra uh when we find Thrawn or on our way to find Thrawn, I don't know 100% if we're going to find them working together. I believe we, the last time we saw Ezra, he was with those giant space whales, right? Yeah. yeah. And and they, right, they had Thrawn sort of wrapped up in a tentacle in his ship and they were warping him out into, into hyperspace. Somehow with broken, you know, windows on the bridge, they were jumping into hyperspace and I'm convinced everybody's going to end up being okay for some reason. Yeah, probably because they're talking about casting Ezra and Thrawn on TV shows. <laughs> well, yeah, but. and you know, I don't know. There'll be something like hypers, like hyperspace is in a vacuum, and so it's fine or whatever, whatever. But one way or another, they're going to be okay. Um, I just, I think it's both going to be a really interesting story. You can see Filoni and Favreau going for it, and you can see Ezra had a pretty open mind, and that his, you know, sort of grayness 
Um, and Thrawn had a pretty open mind in that he was a very honorable bad guy. I was going to say there were there were times when he would just be like, oh, no, they won this round. You know, let, let's yeah. not fight dirty. Let's let them enjoy their victory. And it's like, man, you're supposed to be the bad guy. Why, why are you showing some kind of respect and honor in this instance? And I think that does speak to a bit of his uh, belief system. So he could potentially be swayed. Yeah, I think so. And and again, you know, these books sort of show that he agrees to serve the emperor for the purposes of like getting the empire's backing when he needs them later. And so at the time that he was putting down the rebellion, he was doing his duty as a as a naval officer. I think that in a different context, he could easily be swayed by Ezra to do a duty to the good of the galaxy. And I think that Ezra would not have a problem teaming up with him, just like he, he was willing to team up with Maul. He was willing to team up with a lot of people. He's willing to team up with who he needs to accomplish his objectives. So I could see us ending up with, you know, Ahsoka and Sabine finding Ezra and Thrawn and just this being like a double, double odd couple kind of situation. Cool. Yeah. I, I hope we find Ezra is kind of the next generational uh, Bendu, but we'll see what we come up with. There you go. So, yeah. So a uh, couple of questions from Anonymous here. Uh, first one, did we actually need Snoke? No. Why? <laughs> well... No, because I, I guess we needed somebody. I, I don't know. I mean, I you those two episodes and the arc of what was going on in the First Order were so poorly orchestrated that we needed somebody in that seat if we were going to end up at the Sith Eternal Emperor. I don't think we needed that either. And so backing that all the way out, like we we needed somebody to turn Kylo to the dark side, I guess, in order for his character to exist. But Snoke wasn't the right choice. Couldn't it just have been the power of the dark side? Like, why did it need to be an individual? Couldn't it have just been the seduction of the dark side of the force? Because that's really what, like, we came to believe when we met the Sith, you know, a thousand years ago. Like, Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it could just be his, you know, his fear and his arrogance and knowing who his grandfather is and, you know, Uh, just like his rebellious nature and all of that, you know, taking the wrong turn. I mean, Luke Skywalker there, but for, you know, there, but for a momentary lapse, right? He could have easily turned to the dark side and not as much because of Palpatine, but because, you know, his own, um, his own, you know, impatience and everything. Yoda foresaw it. You saw it in the dark side cave. Like he didn't need a dark side influence to be nudged to the dark side. So yeah, we probably could have had just an, an, Really, and not a description, or even something like, you know, in the uh, in Legends, there's a story of when Luke starts his Jedi Temple in Legends, the spirit of Exar Kun, who's a, an ancient Sith Lord, um, you know, kind of bends the mind of a few people and really just acts in the voice of the dark side um, and ends up causing a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, could have had that kind of situation. I don't know that we needed Snoke as a character. And if we did, we should he should have been developed more. Like he's the most useless character out of all the things. Yeah, yeah. He's up there is pretty useless. Um, I don't know. Do you think he anything? Man, not really. And, and that just kind of ties us into this next question that's uh, kind of on behalf of my brother. Uh, I, I've had multiple discussions with him and we've, 
agreed to disagree, I believe, is where we've landed on this. But why do so many people like Kylo Ren? What are his redeeming or identifying qualities that appeal to so many people? Because I personally don't see them, and I'm trying to like shift my paradigm and look at this in a different way. And what are the ways that we would look at this? Why, why would we want to find ourselves compelled to follow his story? Good question. Do you have, you have some thoughts there? Well, the first one I think is shallow and weird and that allegedly he's portrayed by a handsome actor. And so that is compelling. Um, you know, I, I guess, why did we, why did we fall in love with Han Solo? Harrison Ford's an attractive guy, you know, and then we learn his character development and his arc and, and that kind of thing. Maybe that's part of it. I, I'd like to believe there's something deeper. Uh, I, I think that maybe it has something to do with seeing someone struggle with choosing to be good or choosing to be bad. And today people want to, they want to see truth. They want to see right and wrong. Um, but we identify with the struggle of trying to be true and trying to be right. And, and so maybe that's it, is that that's the the personified experience that we we feel and we look for we, we want to see truth and honor and we want to see what's right portrayed but we know that it's not easy and he does a really good job of showing that um yeah yeah I, it's just odd because he chooses he chooses bad like right i, that, I don't that, get it I, like i think you're right on a lot of that i think there's part of it to me part of it's a generational thing right like we grew up and and i think we identify as gen xers um, we're right on the, you know, not to age us, but we're right on the bubble of being Xers or millennials. I think we both identify as Xers and we grew up in sort of a TV and media and movie culture where there's like, there's good guys and there's bad guys, right? Luke Skywalker, good guy. Uh, Darth Vader, clearly bad guy. Luke fights Vader, clear battle there. Emperor, bad guy. Luke, good guy. Leia, good guy. Han Solo, uh, ambiguous guy who becomes a good guy, right? Like all of those things are true. Uh, I think that the millennial and post-millennial, zillennial or, or digital natives or what, you know, whatever, however we want to label the next, have a little bit more nuanced sort of thing in, in media culture where there's uh, good guys, bad guys, and middle guys and, and, you know, a whole bunch of different, you know, versions. And I think that a lot of people like the idea that people are flawed, that everybody's flawed, and there's no such thing as a pure good guy. The thing, the place where it loses me is where he, his complaint to the force and to the universe and to himself and to everybody is that he's not bad enough, right? No one, no one, no one goes into a story and says, I want to be the bad guy. Right. And like that's where that's where the argument loses me. He's no longer interesting when his objective is to become the bad guy. You become the bad guy because you 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 don't win. Right. You become the bad guy because you oppress people and you oppress people for the right reasons. And then it goes wrong. That's why Anakin is a sympathetic character. Right. Like Anakin ends up turning to the dark side, but we feel bad for him right? Kylo Ren, I don't feel bad for him because he's like, boy, I'm not enough of an a-hole to people. I want to try harder to be bad. Why can't I be bad? Yeah. He's like, to the best of our knowledge, he's being trained by Luke. He's strong with the force. He's getting an opportunity that very few get. 
And to be quite honest, he's got two parents who love him, who he gets to apparently communicate with periodically, as opposed to the Jedi of old days, where you were just like abducted from your family, so you didn't have any attachment. So he's got it pretty good. He's got his uncle teaching him the ways of the Force. He's drinking some blue milk. He's got a bunch of friends learning the ways of the Force together. And then he's like, my parents are too involved in, you know, the post-rebellion government and they don't have time for me and my grandpa he was evil and I, I want to be more like him and my uncle loves me but now he's like scared of me so now I'm just gonna go all in and prove everything that everybody was afraid of right like they yeah. just it he, doesn't track he's an angsty rebellious teenager except he's 30 right or 28 or however but he like he's the, he's too old to be this way and he and, and just his whole like monologue about I feel that even like as he's killing Han Solo and he's like, I'm feeling the pull to the light. Now you don't like it. Nobody says that. Like nobody says that you you can say like, I recognize the power of the dark side and I want to use that. But but even dark side people don't deny the like use of the light side. Right. It's just a very weird. That's the weird thing. So I don't really, really get it. I mean, I, I get it up to like I get like 80 percent of it. And then like the last 20 percent loses me. Um, and that's why his character frustrates the, the everything out of me. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to my first part of my answer that there might be some shallow aspect that made him um, popular and that he was the like it actor at the time. And so, you know, ha having someone who was, you know, popular was, you know, something to just like grab to. He's probably know. the human who spends the most time with his shirt off in all of Star Wars. So, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, let's move on. All right. <laughs> So, um, uh, kind of in uh, interesting, uh, less uh, deep dive kind of question, but uh, from our friend uh, Mr. B, uh, does Hondo have to trim his beard horns? And I guess this actually, you know, to your point, kind of goes to Maul as well. Like, does he have to trim those horns? Is there a special razor that they buy? Do they just use sandpaper? Or is this not a thing? Yeah, so Hondo, I would like to believe that he doesn't have to trim his beard horns, but he chooses to because he thinks it looks cool when he has them like filed down to a point. And I imagine that it's probably well. I would, I would, knowing Hondo, he doesn't do it himself, right? He he's got he's got a he's got a, probably a gal for that, right? Oh man, he's got. I mean, we've talked about slavery and indentured servitude at nauseum on our podcast. I'm sure he's got a whole crew of people that he has waiting on him to make him look the way that uh, he thinks he should. On that, I would I would wager that Hondo would not keep slaves. Um, he would keep prisoners, but not slaves. Distinction: prisoners don't do thing don't don't do work for you. Um, I would imagine that he would pay like. I, I envision him of like going to like whatever his version of a spies and having like three or four Twi'lek women like sanding down his horns and giving him a massage and whatever and then paying them a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it's more than, you know, just yeah, that. But yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> so. That's where it starts. Um, we know that uh, Darth Maul, definite, or Maul, and other uh, Zabrak, uh, it would appear that they do have to maintain their head horns. And we know this because when Maul is on the garbage planet and he's a spider Maul 
and he's a little bit crazy. His head horns are very, very long compared to how they normally are. And then after he kind of gets cleaned up and gets straightened out, they're much shorter. Um, similarly, uh, Savage Opress, when he gets like, he gets his um, uh, night sister um, steroids, his horns get longer, but they don't like, but they like, then he maintains them that way. And I think he actually even kills somebody by stabbing them with his head horns. He, if I he remember did, correctly. yes. Um, so I think that that is an aesthetic choice by those guys to like keep their horns at whatever length they want to keep them. Like fingernails? Like fingernails. Like I would imagine that those horns are like fingernails and, and, uh, or like, you know, like dog claws and you can, you can sand them down with whatever you want to use or clipper them if you need to. Don't clipper them too short or they'll bleed a lot. And then you have to put that thing on them to make them stop bleeding. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Right. So in that same uh, kind of lighthearted vein. What do you think is the best outfit in all of Star Wars movies? Ooh. I know, because, I mean, Padme wears some pretty cool stuff. Padme does wear some pretty cool stuff. Um, best, I think we probably have to go some different categories. Okay. All right. So, like, most impressive kind of ornate, re- you know, like, just, like, I love Padme's... Um, her the the gown that she wears to the Senate uh, when she speaks on behalf of the Naboo that's the red one that has the kind of orb ball things in the bottom of the skirt and she has her hair in the sort of McDonald's arches sort of hairstyle um, I that's one of her best outfits I think that that's really great um, so in terms of like you know just sort of over the top impressive I'd have to say that compared to any of the other like regal outfits that we've seen right yeah yeah i mean i i do like when we first meet padme at the beginning of phantom menace um and she's got her hair kind of in that like big circle yeah yeah i I think that's pretty cool too Uh, allegedly that outfit was over 60 pounds yeah i buy that so Um, she she looks like she's a little bit oppressed by it yeah yeah yeah. i think from like from a an iconic like the, you know, the like outfit that you, you could take that, like the, the face off the character and you'd still know who it was. Mon Mothma's very understated robe with that gold necklace, right? That's a very like, that outfit is Mon Mothma. Yeah. 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 Uh, Anakin's like kind of pre-Clone Wars leather, black leather uh, Jedi outfit. Um dig it as far as all the Jedi go. Um, and um, there has to be a special shout out to the brass bikini. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I guess because two things, and this is where I'm going to throw my, my two cents in for the best outfit, but why does like Jabba have that? Like, I, I mean, it kind of looks like he's enslaved some Twi'lek, so he's got to throw him in what he considers to be appropriate outfits. But does he really have that many things just laying around for prisoners? I mean, if you're going to have dancing slave girls, I would imagine that you have like a closet full of dancing slave girl outfits. And yeah, 
Which is maybe why it shouldn't get an honorable mention. It's really sad when you say it like that. It, it is, and it's only an honorable mention because it's like one of the iconic costumes of the of the show. Every young man growing up watched that and said, oh, that's great. This is my favorite. Yeah, a little bit, including uh, young Luke Skywalker, who only later <laughs> finds out that that was his sister. Not and, great. Yeah, not great. Not great. She always, she knew what she was doing, but he didn't. So in what, that your, same yeah, vein, um, remember when we're on Endor, okay, and uh, they're they're about ready to cook up uh, Luke and Han, and you know three PO has been deemed to be some kind of deity, and but they want to feast in his honor, uh, our, our Ewok friends, and Leia comes back with Wicket. And she's magically changed. She's showered. She's wearing this beautiful dress. I mean, it's not beautiful, but it fits her and it looks nice. Um, and, and it's clean. And it seems to, you know, not just be like totally thrown together. So it's not ornate like Padme's dresses. But why on earth do these Ewoks have this why, dress? Why do the Ewoks have this that dress? This is the best possible outfit that could possibly come up in all of Star Wars. Is that here you have this pretty lady that you want to dress up and they just happen to have the perfect outfit for her. So I'm going to go best outfit right there. Yeah, yeah. And on top of it, just another weirdness in that in that bit is like they are willing to eat Han and Luke, but not her. Like why is she different? Is it just because she's pretty? I think it might be because she wasn't caught with them initially. So I, I think that there was a separate issue that they probably would have added her to the feast had she not come in separately with Wicket. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any other like really good outfits that I can think of. I mean, like Luke's Black Jedi outfit is pretty iconic, but... But honorable nothing. mention to um, all of uh, Lando's capes. Lando's capes, yeah. You gotta love Lando and capes and, you know... Who doesn't love a good cape? Yeah, I mean, they're just pretty awesome. You know what? And just one more, because because we're on the subject, is I I I really wish in and this is honestly true, and I won't do it because I'm not this big of a nerd, but I would love to dress like Han Solo on a daily basis. I think his blue pants with the red stripe and those shirts that he wears are look both comfortable, functional, and badass. And the gun belt doesn't hurt, although wearing a gun belt around is probably not a not a thing you should do. Yeah, you don't need to do that. Don't need to do that. His belt by itself is cool. He's got a pretty cool belt buckle, right? Um, Han Solo's got just, he's got a good, he's got a good style. Yeah, it's just functional, you know? Like yeah. a lot of the other outfits, not that functional. Yeah, like Luke Skywalker's Tatooine thing doesn't make any sense, right? Why does Rey have bare shoulders, but her forearms covered up on a desert planet? Yeah, you would think that she would not because of, you know, sunburn and stuff and the desert protect from the elements. However, I, I think from like a size function kind of thing, it just made for a cool looking outfit. Sure. Yeah. Um. So uh, here we go. Let's uh, go back to our friend Swati. What do we think will happen with Hera and Kanan's son, Jason? I don't want to answer this question because... There's kind of one obvious answer, and it's not great. It's not great. Right? I mean, it seems fairly clear that he would be one of Luke's students, right? I have to assume that he would be Force-sensitive because uh, Kanan's a pretty powerful Jedi. He would almost certainly be recruited to Luke's temple. Uh, 
and we know that most of Luke's students get massacred by the Knights of Ren. So I'm sorry, Swati. I hate to tell you this, but like maybe he's got a cool story and maybe he's got some cool adventures. I, you know, some somebody's got to get killed by those guys, and and I've kind of kind of got a feeling Jason might be on there. Yeah, maybe we could see him um, if we do see Hera again uh, in the Soka series. Maybe we could see Jason there. But I, I think you're right that the natural progression. I mean, we already saw Grogu go with Luke. The natural progression is that Luke is going to try to acquire as many force sensitive folks as he can. And Jason is most likely one of them. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't make it out of there, I don't think. I, I don't think so. I think Broom Boy is, uh, is also, unfortunately, um, on that list. Now, alternatively, we could have a longer story where Jason's uh, legend's namesake, which uh, the name Jason, spelled J-A-C-E-N as it is, uh, is actually in legends the name of one of Han and Leia's children. They have twins, Jason and Jaina. Um, and ultimately, Jason... Uh, turns to the dark side with no Sith influence. He actually just naturally turns to the dark side, becomes a dictator, uh, basically takes over the Republic, names himself Darth Cadius, and ultimately is killed by his own twin sister after murdering Luke's wife um, and several other people and trying to kill Han Solo and failing. Uh, he has a lightsaber battle with his own twin sister who's forced to murder him in front of Han and Leia. Not great either. Not great. So um, I guess, you know, in the in the things that can happen to a Jason, there are worse things perhaps than going to Luke's temple. Yeah. I, I, I don't see good things for him, unfortunately. No. All right. So th- this uh, next question here comes from our friend Larry, who you and I have talked about this many times. And once again, it's it's just worthy of additional discussion because it's just ridiculous so after anakin became vader obi-wan kenobi decides in conjunction with uh yoda and um a couple others keeping the secret to split luke and leia apart hide them from vader and go into hiding himself so what makes obi-wan kenobi think that the safest place to hide luke from vader was tatooine vader's home planet with vader's only living relatives furthermore why did he hide himself there and only change his first name like kenobi is that a super unpopular name or super common name like we're the joneses it's totally fine or is it like oh he's ben kenobi as opposed to obi-wan so nobody's gonna know what he looks like now like when superman and clark kent take the glasses and put the glasses like this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the words of Qui-Gon Jinn, a well-thought-out plan. Not so much. Yeah. I my, my only rational explanation for this is that it's the last place. It's, it's just stupid enough to work, right? It's the last place. Why, even if Vader heard rumors that, like, Owen and Beru had, like, adopted some baby... And they call him Skywalker. You'd be like, yeah, but I mean, that can't possibly. That's That has nothing to do with me, right? That's just like, well, we already know there are Skywalkers there, right? Shmi was there and her name had to come from somewhere. And, you know, so, you know, whatever. And then I guess because he's a hermit, you would think that like news about him wouldn't get out. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, 
like Lars or um, Uncle Owen knew about old Ben Kenobi, right? So it's not like he was completely unknown on Tatooine. And you would think that they would like kind of keep an eye on Tatooine because it keeps coming up. Like it's a, it's a happening place. It's a virgins in the force or something, right? So yeah, terrible, terrible plan. Like why of all the things, there are so many things you could have done there. Yeah, and the Huts control Tatooine. So you've got a crime syndicate running the show out there. And they're all in it to make money and in it for themselves, too. So you got to figure that if they have any little bit of useful information, that they would trade that like currency. So I don't understand how they thought this was well thought out. It's not like, and maybe we've talked about this before, I don't know on the podcast, but certainly, you know, on the couch in between episodes of uh, TV. But, you know, is it, it's not supposed to be like Harry Potter where he's got this protection of the family. Like, Owen and Baru bring nothing except a tough desert life um, as moisture farmers for Luke. Like, is it just to keep him grounded? Is it because they're out on the outer rim that no one really cares out there? So, and that, you know, presumably Vader's got a whole bunch of stuff to do. He's got to hang out in that back to tank for a while. He's got to hunt down the other Jedi. Like, and he's got to build up this army and eliminate all of the clones so he's got like a lot of work to do that would presumably keep him within like the inner rim but i don't know yeah i mean there's the other parts of it right as you pointed out the huts control tatooine so information back like the empire really doesn't have a presence there right and so getting random information about some random guy named kenobi right you know there are trillions and trillions of beings in the galaxy right so the odds of um you know there being only one kenobi probably not that great so there maybe, was probably a kenobi family that obi-wan was stolen from at the age of two yeah. right so so like maybe it's maybe it's one of those things that like oh wow your name's kenobi uh, are you like one of those kenobis no 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 not that kenobi right and then there's you know there is the element of like they they did a pretty good job like in padme's own funeral they had her body look still pregnant so maybe they just really hornswoggled the emperor and vader so well that they they didn't even think to look for children because they assumed that they were dead right that they were never born and so you know i mean like the way they hid leia with um you know in plain sight in plain sight with a like a fairly conspicuous you know anti-empire Right. Alderaan was certainly not neutral in the whole thing. Right. And Bale was one of the primary like, you know, at the at the exact moment that, you know, Padme died, all of a sudden this mysterious baby appears and Bale's got a daughter now. Right. So, like, that's not a great plan either. Right. So I guess maybe it was just that they were too, to your point, they were too busy doing other Empire things to really bother with this. And. You know, I I would guess that Kenobi is doing some sort of force shielding or or helping, you know, Luke's force signature hide. But also there are a lot of force sensitive children in the galaxy that the Empire doesn't find. Right. And so I guess the outer rim is the outer rim. Guess so. Guess so. It still seems like as smart as Obi-Wan is, he could have changed both his first and last name. Yeah, it seems like he could figure that out. Also, like... Just he, stupid enough to he work. He and Yoda and Bale are pretty resourceful. And, like, Bale's got a lot of money. Like, they could have gone into hiding somewhere else. Yeah. Now, Kenobi raising a baby... Like, the one part of this that I totally get, I could not imagine Obi-Wan Kenobi raising a baby as a single father. So, putting Luke with a couple that would, like, 
literally keep him from dying from like being a growing human probably a good choice yeah i I mean begs the further question um you know we don't have children so we should not judge but it, it does seem like many of the um working class within the galaxy far far away tend to have a lot of children so it is odd that owen and baru don't have any but no judgment because we are not uh parents ourselves so you know it yeah. it maybe they, they realized that their responsibility was too great once they got luke they're like oh this is a big deal let's not screw this up who yeah. only knows so i mean lars lars and uh shmi only had one one child like maybe tatooine there's just so little water that you can't have a lot of kids that that also makes sense yeah so uh here's one that never really crossed my mind hadn't put any thought into it and then uh our, our friend dan here uh kind of made a comment that you know i started uh scratching my head trying to figure it out and he he's kind of said it's pretty obvious that r2d2 and c3po are a couple and i had never thought of it that way um do you think they are if so do you think they are does it matter if they're gendered if they are gendered which direction like does it matter is there something that seems obvious or are they just hetero life mates like jay and silent bob yeah, I'm and not even hetero. Are they just life mates? Well, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm not sure how to gender droids. Right. Right. First off, um, I always had the impression that that. So I've always had the like if you if you had to assign such things, I always had the impression that like C-3PO was kind of an effeminate male droid, like a like a like a French butler. And that uh, R2-D2 was kind of like a tough guy, like, um, you know, kind of like a, like an infantry grunt, right? But, but, but had a lot of personality. And then weirdly, like BB-8 is like a dog, right? Yeah, BB-8's definitely the dog. Right, like R2-D2 is not a dog, but BB-8's a dog. And Dio, which is the little guy from the, from the sequel trilogy, is like a, like a, I don't know, somewhere between a BB-8 and an R2-D2. I'm not really sure what he is, right? Um, They definitely have a relationship. They definitely have a lifelong friendship. Um, I mean, R2-D2 backs up C-3PO's memory. So I don't know what you would call that in human terms. They have a closeness. Um, I'm not sure what that... I don't know that that translates into human relationships. And I'm not sure that like gendering them exactly makes sense. But they are as close as two beings can be. I do believe they have an intimate relationship um, in that they truly do care for each other and have committed their lives together. And what's more intimate than that? Um, I, I think upon further thought, I disagree. And I think that if we were to gender the droids which again it's still a little bit far-fetched and uh, then we move into this whole like man they like buy and sell these entities which we're not comfortable with but i always felt like c-3po was more female not an effeminate male but more female um she she a little bit know-it-all-ish you know the the smart girl in the class that's always correcting everyone um i you know we I know I had moments like that myself growing up, um, so I, I could see that. Um, R2-D2, I could see as the 
the the Bart Simpson of the class, if you will. Um, there for all the action, uh, always manages to get away with it, and <laughs> but still ne needs a friend and, and needs someone to support them. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like they they are in some kind of committed relationship that they will be together. Yeah, I think that the uh, so I think it's interesting that the way that you and I both see three C three PO and and I think part is that we see things through the lens of our own experience, right? And so 100%. there's something like that. Um, I one thing that I do think is appalling, as we've talked about so many times on this show, is how much the humans have no respect for that relationship. Right. And, you know, it's one thing when, you know, like when we're going out to fight the Death Star and like Lando is going to go on the Millennium Falcon and, you know, Han, Luke and Leia are going to go down to the planet, which is tactically the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But whole other conversation. Um, but like they say they have their goodbyes and whatever. And like every once in a while, C-3PO and R2-D2 kind of say goodbye. But like the humans never express any kind of like, oh, man, we're like taking you guys and we're splitting you up to go do different missions. And one of you is probably going to die along the way. Right. There's like just no consideration for that. And they have to find their own time to like have their conversations and say their goodbyes. And if they don't have a chance to do it, it's fine. The other thing that's wild is I saw this on Twitter like a week ago and it had never occurred to me before is that at. Um, Anakin and Padme's secret wedding. The only beings that were there were those two, the minister, C-3PO and R2-D2. And I'd always assumed that it was because like they were kind of witnesses to the wedding and that they could be ordered to be kept quiet. Well, it turns out in some like in the novelization of that, um, R2-D2 was a wedding gift from Padme to Anakin and C-3PO was a wedding gift from Anakin to Padme because... C-3PO was like the only thing that the, the two wedding gifts that Anakin gave Padme were C-3PO and his Padawan braid. And Padme gave him R2-D2 as a wedding present because they owned them. And that's why they were there at the wedding, because they were the they were the presents. Oh, man, that'll bake your noodle. That's not great. No, it's not great. And I mean, it explains. I would have rather they would have had like a joint wedding like that would be slightly that, less bad that would be slightly less bad but that was not and that's why then after that right you see them kind of switch droids and it never really occurred to me but those were they were wedding presents to each other oh man and just to clarify like i don't have any problem with droids getting married or if they're of the same or different genders or of no genders getting married what i do struggle to understand is sharing a wedding day with someone else but, sure <laughs> but we do sometimes talk about marriage so here we are we do and i guess on that same vein right because they try to be a little bit more explicit in solo did you get the impression that um l3 mm -hmm. is distinctly feminine right yes Right. And that she and Lando do have some kind of relationship or want to. Yes. Right. hundred percent. And and for what it's worth, Billy D has said that he, both he as an actor and Lando and his portrayal are um, he's like, I'm not sure I understand all this. So I guess I'm going to say that I'm pansexual, like I'm open to whatever with whatever. And Lando even more so, I guess, you know, ranging from Oregon to Mecca. Right. But um, yeah, L3 was distinctly feminine. Oh, 100% agree. Yeah. 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 No, Lando, he, he was just going wherever the tide would take him. And God bless him. Had, had uh, a yeah. lot of adventures. So I, I hope we get to see more of those uh, in the future. Yeah. So just a couple more before we wrap up tonight. Um, 
and maybe this is one that we should table for another time. Um, but are there any redeeming qualities in Episode Eight, The Last Jedi? Yeah, we should probably table that for another time. Um, sure. What's the line? I think it's a Reverend Lovejoy line. Um, short answer, no, with an and. Long answer, yes, with a but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, of course there are. It's Star Wars. It's great. Um, it's Carrie Fisher's last movie. It's Carrie Fisher's last movie. You know, it advances some story. Um, you know, I, especially after seeing the Mandalorian season two, you know, and I've, and I've gone on already about how we finally got the Luke Skywalker that we wanted. I still maintain my ending is better, but still the the power of Luke's force projection and the pacifism that he shows and the inspiration that he shows Ray and he gets Ray on her path and everything. There's some good stuff there. I still think it could be tweaked and be a little bit better. Um, visually awesome. Love that crate sequence, right? The the red and white, you know, oh, salt. It's stunning. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, Finn, I don't want to open this door and don't at me. Finn should have been allowed to fly his ship into that laser. And I don't really like, there's a lot of stuff going on on Twitter right now about um, how Finn got, um, you know, the fact that Finn was allowed to live is the source of a lot of the problems with his character development. But I think that he could have finished his story arc and just died there. And the fact that Rose knocked him out of the way and that neither of them died was just a bad storytelling. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there are some redeeming things. Um, not a ton, you know, boss, feel free to at me in the, in the channel later and tell me how wrong I am. It's great. (laughs) All right. So, uh, let's finish this up with who are our favorite couples in star Wars? What pairing would we like to see? And specifically who would we pair Ahsoka with and why? And I, I'm going to take that last question first because you know how i feel about this um i would pair ahsoka tano with sabine wren 100 percent. i think that the two of them have shared experiences there is an age difference which is you know i i'm not usually in support of but i think because of the experiences they have that that certainly doesn't really matter um i like the idea of seeing two powerful funny talented women supporting each other in their adventures throughout the galaxy far far away um i like the idea of you know the mandalore that are so tied to their homeworld and their culture i like the idea of sabine expanding outside of you know the different clans and and, you know not being uh some kind of nativist you know so i i like that idea as well i i think that you know, we, we have two clearly female gendered uh, stars, potentially. Um, and I think that there needs to be more relationships that are not your heteronormative relationships as well. So I, I would love to see that. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I think that that would be great. I think it would be totally, um, uh, you know, in in the personality of both of them. Sabine is not your typical Mandalorian um, you know, they usually don't paint their armor the way she does. They don't behave the way she does. They don't think the way she does. So I think that that would be a really, that would be, um, a, just a really good expansion of both of their characters. Um, yeah, I mean, backing out your question, you know, obviously Han and Leia are, are a really great couple, even though, 
you know, they end up, um, you know, split up. It's so normal, right? It's, you know, they, they got together under some pretty heavy circumstances. They're a really great match for each other. They're a little volatile, right? They have a kid, something goes horribly wrong with that and they end up divorced. This is a story we, you know, all, all know from, you know, real life, real life. Right. So they're, they're probably the most realistic couple, um, in, uh, in, in the whole, the whole thing, Canaan and, um, you know, I'm trying to think of what like actual couples we know. Canaan and Hera are confusing. Yeah. Cause it's not until the episode before Canaan dies where they even like start flirting with the L word. Like, and, and they've clearly been together. They, 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 well, what was like, weird is yeah. that they, like they, in the first three episodes of rebels, they make it very clear that they're a couple. And then for like four seasons, they're not. They don't break up. They just don't address it. And then they come back and in the last three episodes, they always were or what? And they've got separate quarters and and which I understand, you know, sometimes we need our space. Like, you know, earlier today, you you tried to come and talk to me and I was like, just no, I am in the middle of something. So like I get the idea of having separate space uh, on the ship, but but yeah, they they are a tough couple because you want to support them because they're both really good people, but they just don't demonstrate that level of emotion or connection and chemistry. So I, I don't really feel like they are up there as far as like a, a top couple. Owen and Baru are probably a very normal couple as well. Yep. Um, Favorite? Not so much. No, but... Lars and Shmi are a little problematic. Yeah, definitely. Really problematic there. He buys her, frees her, marries her. Not not my favorite. Jar Jar and Queenie kind of skeeve me out a little bit. I don't know why. I don't understand why why you have a problem with the fact that they make out and then do yoga together. Like, that's not that weird. That's actually, like, pretty... That's Maybe like, it's because I hate yoga. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, because, like... <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel like they're, they're doing Tai Chi or like they're meditating together. I'm not, a, I don't know why that's such a, such t- like, har- why that's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't really like meditation, Tai Chi or yoga. So yeah. maybe that, that's my big problem with the relationship there. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, uh, Obi-Wan and Satine. Yeah. I choose to believe that's real. I, I believe that's a real relationship too. And it's hard to put it up there with being a favorite relationship because... It just does. I mean, they both pick their responsibilities over each other. And, you know, like I, I know that the aforementioned get out of my office. I got work to do. I, I picked that temporarily, not permanently. And I think I struggle with a permanent pick of something other than love. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, you know, in terms of relationships that I'd like to see, you know, it's like the, the ship has sailed on this one and we're not going to get it. I really think that it would have been important and valuable for Luke to have a wife. Um, and in Legends, his wife is um, Mara Jade, who is one of the one of like the classic badass women of Star Wars. She was the Emperor's hand, so she was a, like a Sith acolyte essentially under the Emperor. She would go around. She was she was kind of like an Asajj Ventress. Um, but she was, you know, like his assassin slash enforcer slash agent. And then, you know, she basically met Luke 
who she was ordered to kill as like the emperor's last command. She got over it. They ended up having a relationship. She wrote him like she was very hard on Luke and she had a lot of, you know, feelings about her past um, that were tough to resolve, but they ended up figuring out a way to make it work. But one way or another, I would have really liked to see Luke have a wife or a husband or whatever, like some romantic relationship that would sort of break that cycle of Jedi lack of attachment. I felt like the fact that he was sort of a hermit alone really hurt his character and was um, something that was was really lacking. So I would have loved to see Luke have um, a romantic relationship. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you there. I, I think kind of the further development of what the Jedi are to become, we see that Rey has that attachment with uh, Ben or Kylo Ren, like, and also skeeves me out along the same lines as Jar Jar and Queenie. But I, I think that, you know, from a relationship standpoint, who do we want to see being paired up? Um, there, there's not a lot of opportunity. There's not enough characters at this point. I, I would say, you know, we, we've talked about this. I want to see Din Djarin, um, find some kind of, of mate. I don't know if it's going to be a Cara Dune, if it's going to be another Mandalorian, if it's going to be a new character, but I, I think his role as father isn't quite behind them but I I think that there's more to come as far as what his role is and it's going to expand outside of the parent relationship yeah and you know that he's capable of it because he definitely was in love with um the woman on that one planet yeah um that was pretty vague um yeah in the sanctuary episode yeah yeah. yes popping back to to ray uh you know it it was it's been floated you know kind of ray and finn or ray and poe uh, do you have a, a way you would want to see that go? I feel like neither Poe nor Finn is worthy of Rey. Yeah, I um, think that's right. I, I think that she, first of all, is just beautiful. And not that it should matter about looks or anything, because those other two guys are, are very handsome men as well. But um, I, I think that she doesn't realize how great and exceptional she is. And the two of them think that she's great and exceptional, but they also think they're great and exceptional. And so I think that for her, what she needs, if she needs a relationship, it is for someone who also is coming into their own. And and for the same reason that I would love to see Ahsoka and Sabine together because they both know how great they are individually and respect the other as well. I I think that Rey would need someone who is learning about themselves as well that she could not go the the balance every everything would be outside of balance if she was paired with someone who thought strongly and highly of their own selves yeah and that was why i think her and finn were kind of set up and they were a good setup right they were both coming from being nobodies right he's just a number he didn't even have a name and she was some orphan on um, Jakku, right? And that they were uh, set up to go on that journey, personal journey together. Um, but then he was like fast forwarded to be way too big for his britches. So yeah. that's why it fell through. Yeah. His story was not told correctly. Nah, I, I would agree there. Um, yeah. So uh, other, like other characters we know, you know, I feel like Ezra is more of a monk. You know what's one couple? Oh, that this isn't a traditional couple, and I don't even know if it's a couple. But just one more, one more honorable mention before we move on is Zeb and um, Agent Callus. 
Oh man, I love that relationship. Yeah. That, that is great. Um, but that's a brother relationship. Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's a brother relationship or a or a deeper relationship, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would love to see a little bit more of that story told. We probably won't see it told, no. but um yeah. But yeah, so, all right. Well, on that note, we, we kind of hit all these questions here. And uh, I, I think we need to uh, keep your voice healthy. So we should wrap this up so we can do another pod next week. I love you. I know. <laughs>